Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. <laughs> the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is, what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and to the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Emma sat with me and my wife one day, full of fear. She had found a lump in her chest and her husband had asked us round to talk to them. We hadn't even sunk into the sofa when the list of anxieties streamed from her like a burst main. And her worries weren't unfounded, not in the slightest, but her fear list had skewed her perspective. So as she talked frantically, I paused her and said, Emma, who is God? The question seemed daft to her. I mean, what do you mean, who is God? God's God, she said. And I said, tell me about him. Take a sec, then tell me what he's like. And she did. Uh, God is good, she started. God is faithful. Uh, he loves us. He is kind. He is gracious. He's compassionate. And as attribute after attribute streamed from her mouth, we could see her fears subside. No, they didn't go away, but she saw her hardship in a different light because she saw who was with her, what he's like, and what he does as a matter of routine for his children. Now, the book of Revelation does exactly the same thing for the church. It puts everything in perspective, especially hard things. That's what it did for the first century church. Persecution was fierce back then, and it was a serious threat. But like the pilot warning of turbulence, uh, Revelation strapped the church in for a bumpy ride and promised that they will get to their destination. What put their pain in perspective, uh, into perspective and produced such incredible endurance for them? This, a vision of what God is like. 
And it does exactly the same thing for us today. Life is still a bumpy ride. Goodness me, doesn't coronavirus prove that? I mean, who would have thought that as we rung in the bells last Hogmanay, three months later we'd be in lockdown, unable to see loved ones, watching daily death tolls rise with every news bulletin. It's been a sobering experience to have it, well, expose our idols of health and wealth and indeed complacency in mission. It brings its own trials, doesn't it? Well, in times like these, nothing puts anything and everything into perspective quite like a vision of the unspeakably glorious Jesus Christ. So let's refocus on what's true and let's have a look at Revelation 1, 1 to 8 as we start this series and do what verse 3 says to take these words to heart for two main reasons. One, they have God for their author. That's verses 1 to 3. And two, they transform your perspective. That's verses four to eight. So number one, take these words to heart. They have God for their author. Now, he is the source of this revelation. He's the source of these words. The, this revelation comes from him. Verses one and two tell us that it came from John, who was one of the 12 disciples, but only after a chain of note passing that began with God himself. John's just a messenger. God wrote the note in love to his people uh, through the Son, Jesus Christ, the Father's delight, and through the angel Christ sent, divine, a divine messenger employed by God, as he often does, crucial times in history explaining crucial things to God's people about what God is doing and making the unmissable unmissable. So God is the source of these words that we're going to study together and what's more it, he has a purpose for these words. Not just the source he has a purpose. It's twofold really. One is to show us something. That's what verse one says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So something's coming, God wants us to be in the know. And that's what revelation means. God's purpose is keeping his church fully informed of what to expect in these days and the days ahead. Now, if you have read Revelation, a slice of it or all of it, you might be wondering, if God wants us to be so fully informed, why is it so cryptic? Why does it seem so hard to understand? I get that question. I mean, at times it reads like it's something from Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? There's a dragon in there, for goodness sake. But there are two reasons why I think we find it hard to understand. One, we approach it the wrong way. High school English teaches us to apply different interpretative principles to different types of literature. So you don't read poetry the same way you read a novel. Uh, you don't read Lord of the Rings the same way you would read uh, a biography. No, you have to take into account what type of literature it is and what the author intends for you to do in terms of your approach. Well, Revelation belongs to the genre of literature known as apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic literature is not largely literal except for sections where the author intends it to be taken literally. Most often, it's symbolic. It's jam-packed with images, they mean something. Lots of numbers in there, they mean something too. They're not meant for mathematical calculations or date predictions, unless that's the way the author intends them. They are symbolic. And that symbolism makes the book 
timeless. It lends to the kind of temporal transcendence of the meaning of this book, which says, well, it's a book for today. Second reason why we find it unclear or hard to understand is we don't know our Old Testament well enough. Astonishingly, 70% of this book contains a reference quotation or an allusion to a passage in the Old Testament. Uh, and it sheds so much light when we look at this book through the lens of the Old Testament and the teachings of Christ. It's vital. But we tend, well, to prefer our New Testaments, don't we? Or at least we don't read enough of our Old Testament to understand what we're looking at here in Revelation. But God's got crucial things to show us that we need for our ongoing walk with him. Now, God's purpose, of course, is not just to show us something in this book, in Revelation. We're not just meant to have information for mental assent. He intends to bless us. Of course he does. I mean, God always intends our knowledge of him to lead to greater joy. How much do we need to hear that in these days, of course? I mean, if, if happiness is contingent on good health and a safe job or freedom to go out, we're going to be miserable. If happiness is contingent on uh, things going our way at home or kids being schooled at school, we'll despair. But true joy lies in the presence of God, in his ongoing blessing and the reassurances of what future he has promised for us. Joy is found in what he shows us in this book. The joy is also found in actually sharing the words of this book. Verse 3 tells us, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Well, there's that's the way to think when, uh, when we're asked to do a Bible reading, isn't it? What a blessing it is to read the scriptures aloud in other people's hearing. And that's certainly the way to think of it when we're sharing it with others. What a blessing it is to open God's word and tell them what it says. And pastors, that's the way to think when preaching it to others. What a blessing it is to take God's word and explain it to the people he's given us to love. Every God-breathed word is a treasure. Every spirit-inspired sentence is living and active. What a privilege and a blessing it is to us to pass it on. Uh, and I guess the question is at this point, are we? Are we announcing to anyone who will listen how blessed it is to know God, the God who is revealed in this book and the other 65. Well, joy is found in reading these words aloud, but it's also found in taking them to heart, hearing them and taking them to heart. Now, that's carefully put, isn't it? When you take something to heart, you're not just listening to something, you're loving something. It involves more than just your ears. It's an exercise of the heart. It's the employment of the affections and I guess the proof that these words are your treasure is of course obvious in your daily life it's in your faith it's in your obedience it's in the way you put off sin and the way you put on Christ it's in your worldview it's in how you respond to coronavirus even while loving and treasuring these words employing the whole of your affections in the hearing of these words God says will lead to great blessing it's for are good and there is nothing quite like being happy in God as we grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is and what he's doing that's what makes us happy indeed that's what's behind John's elation as we see in verses four to eight because in one to three we've got a man introducing you to what he's just seen 
He's treasured up all the things that have been revealed to him and he's going to tell you everything it contains and he just before he does he just bursts into praise of God in mind-blowing terms and they transform his perspective that's point two take these words to heart they really transform your perspective now we know that God's people routinely face testing times they experience things that ordinarily would not lead to joy. I mean, think of John. John is alone on the island of Patmos. He's not self-isolating. This is imposed isolation, imposed for preaching the gospel. And think of the churches addressed here. The churches in Asia, in Turkey, that's Asia Minor. They're undergoing real trials. I mean, persecution under the emperor of Domitian has reached a whole new level. It was barbaric. And yet, think of the church today as well also addressed through the timelessness of this letter. All kinds of trials affect our faith and our testimony, whether it's persecution from outside or temptation from within. Yet, God's word know, God's people know, a peculiar and inexplicable joy and elation, even in hard times. And there are two reasons why in verses four to eight. First, they come to know the pastoral heart of the triune God. That's what we see in verses four and five. Like I said earlier, this book comes from God with assurances of grace and peace. And here from God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we receive grace, kindness we don't deserve, peace, friendship that reassures our hearts. These are the blessings that God, the Holy Trinity, loves to give. Grace and peace come from God the Father. That's what John tells us. The one who in verse 4, who is, who was and is to come. Now note the order of that. God wants to reassure his people of his ongoing presence now. Verse 8 says the very same thing with the addition of the alphabet illustration later. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. Well, what point is being made well it means he's eternal infinite constant never not there and nothing's going to change that well that'll transform your perspective on life that'll turn hardships into joy well, grace and peace not only come from God the Father, John says, but from God the Holy Spirit too. Verse 4, from the seven spirits before his throne, that is the Father's throne. Now, don't be confused about that. There's only one Holy Spirit. There aren't seven. No, the number seven in here, like I alluded to earlier, is symbolic. It isn't a literal number. It represents fullness. It represents completion. It represents perfection. And that's the point. This is God the Holy Spirit perfect in himself, sharing all the attributes of deity with the Father and the Son, yet distinctly and especially at work to apply the work of the Father and the Son in creation and salvation, and at the same time, personally and pastorally, indwelling God's people, working in them, revealing things to them, transforming them, sealing them, keeping them. That'll transform how you face trials and hardships. Grace and peace come from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and also from God the Son, Jesus Christ, verse 5, who is the faithful 
witness. What do witnesses do? Witnesses testify to the truth about the things that they have seen. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He's testified to the truth about God and his gospel, about sin and our needs, about his cross and our salvation. And he testified faithfully, obediently, all the way to a cross. But he didn't stay dead. As verse 5 says, he is the firstborn from among the dead, which tells us he's alive, raised forever as living proof that his sacrifice on that cross was accepted, raised forever to unconquerable majesty, raised to prove that death is not the end, raised to say, as I live, you also shall live, firstborn as if to say, there are more to come. His resurrection, being the first, is the very resurrection that guarantees ours. And, John continues, God the Son is the ruler of all things. Well, he is sovereign. He reigns forever uncontested. The undisputed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A message driven home throughout, throughout this book. Now that, for sure, will transform your perspective on life. And that gives some insight into why people in hard times, Christians in hard times, can still know this strange and peculiar but very real joy. Majestic is too weak a word to describe the one true God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But how astonishing it is to find that one so great cares so personally and pastorally for us. I find that incredible. He comes with grace and peace. He comes to say, I'm with you. He comes to say, I've got this. Uh, he comes to say, you can be happy in me. Now, knowing God like this is the first thing that produces this inexpressible elation in hard times. But the second thing, it's knowing the incomparable glory of the salvation of the Son of God. Uh, John just bursts into glory and praise of Jesus Christ here. Uh, he says uh, to, and he glories in something of his love in the present, to him who loves us, he says, loves, present tense. To be loved by him, of course, is to be cared for by him. And no one looks out for us like Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of love that gives us real perspective on our trials. And John then glories in Christ's salvation that he's seen in the past. I mean, sin is a bigger, biggest, a bigger threat to humanity than coronavirus. It is our biggest problem. It enslaves us. We're unable to free ourselves from its power or penalty. The whole Bible shows us that. But here at the end, John reminds us of what the cross did. Jesus freed us by his death on the cross in our place for our sins as he shed his blood. But he not only freed us, he's given us a place to belong, a kingdom and a work to do. That's the priestly reference. That's what verse 6 says. He made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. So he not only gives us blessing, he gives us purpose. He's employed all believers, you, me, in bringing glory to the Son through our worship of God and through the relaying and teaching of the word of God. That's what priests did. That's what all believers are to do. 
Oh, they not only glory in the present love of Christ and in the past work of Christ, true believers glory in the promised return of Christ, something in the future. Now, we have something glorious to look forward to. Christ himself promised, and the New Testament promises, Jesus is coming back. And verse 7 contains, guess what? Quotations, too from the Old Testament, from from Daniel and Zechariah. Luke, it says, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So when he comes, what are we going to see? We're going to see the believer's faith vindicated, the believer's endurance rewarded, the believer's suffering gone, the believer's hope realised. What a day that will be. And at the same time, though, there will be, as verse 7 continues, mourning. Mourning. All people on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Yes, Christ's return will be accompanied with the kind of wailing that's typical to mourners, except it won't be someone else's death that people mourn on that day. It will be their own For if people remain in unbelief when that happens, they'll realise with great regret how wrong they have been and how late they are to see what's true about God and what they needed to see to be saved. Please don't let that be you. The single determining factor in whether or not you'll shout for joy or wail in regret is faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're watching this and you haven't yet trusted in Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Turn from sin and trust in him. Get in touch if you like. Find out more. We'd love to talk to you about this. But what a difference knowing God like this, knowing God to be the God who he truly is like this. What a difference that made to John. What a difference it made to the churches who heard and who took to heart what God says and what a difference it makes to us, it transforms our perspective. It changes how we live. It changes how we face hardship. It changes everything. Now, the question is, what difference will this vision actually make in your life and in your hardships? Maybe your life is a shambles. Maybe coronavirus has exposed that you you actually love your health or your wealth more than you should. Maybe you're insanely lonely. Uh, maybe you're maybe you've been denied something and you feel it's unfair. Maybe your ongoing sin brings guilt and shame in crushing waves. Well, these scenarios often leave us to scramble somewhere amid the scraps of our own existence, looking for some reasons to be cheerful, but all we're left with is despair. We're not going to find anything in that. And then fears rise, fears overflow in conversation. We're worried about this, we're worried about that. But pause. Think, brother. Think, sister. Who is God? What is he like? Does he care? Revelation 1, 1 to 8 says, yes, he is magnificent. He is our saviour. He cares for us deeply. 
what a difference that makes in our lives today. Now we understand, of course, blessed are those who hear and take to heart what is written in this book.